Well, I think if you're going to pick any of the land animals to partner with fish, the, the pig just stands out. It's that sweet, fatty, it just, it works beautifully. If I could pick one sort of land animal to eat for the rest of my life, it would be the humble pig. The, the versatility and um, you know, the amount of products that you get out of it is just incredible. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Chef Colin Barker spent years at the boathouse as one of the country's best fish cooks, but now he's in the Megalong Valley where he's exploring land-based proteins much more, and in particular, the whole pig. From fins, scales and fishtails to nose to tail of the whole pig. Colin, how are you? I'm good, Huck. How are you, mate? Good, mate. You've had a pretty dramatic life change from the by the sea in Sydney to uh, regional New South Wales. What's it like? It's a bit of a shift, mate. Um, almost sort of like going back to my roots, really. Um, definitely enjoying it. Um, yeah, no complaints. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the projects. It's an incredible project um, that you've been part of um, there at Lot 101 with the Megalong the Restaurant. Tell us a bit about what you're doing. Yeah, so um, Lot 101 is the entire precinct. So we've got um, 16 cabin accommodations across two properties. Um, 10 of them are yet to be renovated. They literally sit behind uh, the, the, the restaurant and the, the kitchen garden. Um, the restaurant itself, we've converted the old, uh, the original homestead um, into a 50-seat uh, restaurant. And we're growing as much produce uh, and raising as much livestock as we can on the property. We're, like I said, we're about 1,100 acres total. Uh, we've got uh, cattle production, lamb production, probably about six, seven acres of veg, olive grove, um, berry production, probably about two acres of berries and uh, 90 f- fruit trees, um, and then a whole heap of uh, great local suppliers and uh, producers as well. When, when you're at the boathouse, you're reliant on um, suppliers giving you everything that you need. What's it like sort of growing your own produce and having the garden there? Has it changed the way you cook? Yeah, absolutely. Um, takes a whole lot of planning, you know, like the uh, working with our um, production manager and farm manager, you know, we're sort of, we're looking at crops, you know, some things are planted almost, you know, seven months in advance and um, being self-sufficient, um, you know, Mother Nature doesn't always play along, uh, you know, these extended periods of wet, um, we've got a very unique microclimate up there where we still have uh, frosts up until mid-November. So, you know, the, the slightest little change in weather or, you know, at the moment the temperatures have just snapped and you know, we've had snow in the mountains and all of a sudden everything just goes, you know, I don't want to grow anymore. Um, so you've got to wait for the ground to thaw out before things like that can grow. Um, so, it, yeah, it's, look, it's been an education, um, but it's been a, a fantastic uh, learning experience as well. Is it a different approach, you know, when you're cooking sort of in that regional setting compared to being in the city? Do you, do you approach sort of what you're doing differently um yeah i suppose you do um i think one of the things like when you've seen um something grow from seed to to plate or you know you've you you've been there for you know, the you know putting the the ram over the ewes and then lambing and it gives you a greater respect um you want to do better with the produce um the other thing too is just the phenomenal you know there's no cold storage you know in, in in the case of fruit and veg you know like things are ripening on the tree things are ripening in the ground and the intensity of flavor is really really incredible so you know i'm spoiled a lot of the work's done in the paddock before it actually gets to me 
One of the things I noticed recently that you were doing, you had all of these pig's heads uh, lined up. Um, tell, us, tell us a little bit about what you've been cooking with pork there. Yeah, so we're lucky enough to have in uh, the next valley over, the Canimbla, um, uh, got contacted by uh, a guy that lives in the valley. It's a, he's got an extension of his farm over the back there. And uh, they're raising a um, couple of heritage breeds of, of pig over there. Um, these particular ones that we, we used the other day were a uh, large black cor- uh, cross Berkshire. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, I wouldn't say confronting, but get, getting back to what I was saying before about, um, you know, having respect for the product and utilising the, the whole thing. Um, you know, you, you only get two tenderloins, you only get two short loins. It's, it's, you've got to be very creative with the entire creature. And, um, you know, it's a real challenge as a chef, but it's great fun. And it's, it's also for the staff, um, you know, it's ever changing. So they're, they're always engaged and, uh, and, and having a good time. Uh, tell us, uh, you said you talked about sort of using the whole beast. Tell us about some of the things that you've been cooking and the different cuts that you've been utilising to, to make, take advantage of that. Yeah, well, probably um, the other day, the video you saw that went up, the, the heads and the trotters, we just boiled them down and made like a brawn type arrangement. Um, you know, all the trimmings um, from the pigs we've been making into various sort of um, salamis, sausages, um, bits and pieces like that. Um, and then these particular pigs weren't huge. They are probably only a carcass weight of about 30 kilos, so they were sort of a little bit lean, but... Um, you know, we, uh, we we hung them in the dry aging room for about two and a half, three weeks and really leathered that skin up and then just been cooking like the racks and the loins and things um, skin on over the um, the open charcoal. Most amazing crackling and then finishing them off in the wood oven. So, you know, very simplistic. Got a great run of persimmons on at the moment, which have uh, been pairing up beautifully with the, the piggies. Um, yeah, we're just having a bit of fun, mate. Tell us a little bit about the small goods. Is you know, it's quite an art to it. Have you had some challenges or hurdles in sort of producing it and successes? You can tell us about. Um, still very early days for us with that. I've got a um, a, a great mate of mine uh, who's of Italian background, and his family's um, for the last couple of years of. Let me uh, be an honorary Italian and get in there and, and do the the family salami thing. Um, it's yeah, really really cool. Um, and then oh, probably about 18 months ago, I actually went down to someone else who's done the podcast with you. Um, that was Ian Martin from Martin's Ridge. And just went and had a look uh, and, a, and a chat with those guys, did one of his courses, and that was a real eye-opener. So um, some of the shorter-term stuff that we've done um, has worked out fantastic. We've had a few failures. Um, we did by one particular curing cabinet that had a – a faulty board in it and it wasn't holding the humidity that we wanted but once we figured that out um yeah it's just yeah you know, meat salt time um it's it's yeah it's been amazing it's a, you know like i said before it's it's good fun um and and you know trying to to do justice to all these different you know wonderful different cuts you know the neck the cheeks the all the bits and pieces. Uh, Italians are great at utilising the whole beast, and um, you mentioned that you've, on occasion, been an honorary Italian. Take us to take us to that day and the experience that you have. What, what sort of happened, and what was it like for you? Um, so uh, this particular guy, Anthony, um, he's been my long-term hunting mate um, for I don't know a decade now, and uh, forever. We'd, we'd go on these trips and his dad would send, you know, little bits of pancetta or salami or whatever he'd made. 
And I said to Ant, I said, mate, do you know how to make this? And he's like, no, I don't. And I said, mate, you've got to keep this alive. This is fantastic. And his dad, he's, he's, you know, he's always like, I'll give this to your friend, the chef, see what he thinks, see what he thinks. And, you know, jars of pickled eggplant and posada and things like that. So uh, we went, he rang me like the Friday night or a Friday night. And he said, oh, look, mate, we're doing salamis tomorrow. I went, okay, cool. No worries. And uh, we jumped in the car and we got down to uh, a, a small, oh, sort of like a 20-acre property that was owned by one of their family friends just outside of Sydney. And um, I'm expecting to get there and, you know, there's a couple of sides of pork or whatever it happened to be. We get around the back and there's these two cow-sized live pigs. And uh, I went, all oh, right. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I was the, the new boy and, you know, not, not of Italian background. So I said, oh, who does all the killing, you know, like... How does it end? He, he handed me a rifle and went, it's going to be you today, mate. He goes, the old bloke that used to do it doesn't want to do it with us anymore, so you're off. <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, uh, I'm you know, the, the honorary now and uh, I get an invite back every year. And, um, yeah, look, it's, it's an amazing food culture to be a part of. A um, little bit confronting first time around, you know, being the new boy on the block. But, um, no, very, very cool, mate. The, uh, the fresh liver sandwiches were a little bit, uh, how you going the first time around? <laughs> <laughs> but you got, to, you got to man up and be a part of it, otherwise you won't get invited back. What did you make that day? Like, how do they utilise the, the whole pig? Uh, they kept a lot of the cuts for, for fresh and then the rest. So we did two carcasses and, like I said, they were enormous pigs. Um, I think we ended up, um, uh, they, they cured a few bits and pieces uh, on the side, you know, the, the guanciale and, and uh, a few uh, slabs of pancetta and things like that. But predominantly everything else got turned into salami to split up between everybody. And I think all said and done, there was probably about 120, 130 kilos worth of salami swinging a couple of days later. That's extraordinary. I, I want to explore sort of what you're doing there um, at Megalong. And I know even at the boathouse, you know, you were renowned as one of Australia's best fish cooks. But, you know, terrestrial um, proteins ended up weaving their way into the menu somehow as well occasionally. Um, but take us back to when you were young. Where did you grow up and sort of what role did food play for you? Um, grew up. In a semi, oh, well, it was a very rural area growing up, but, you know, like with the way Sydney's growing now, it's right on the doorstep. Um, little town called Moralia out in the Hawkesbury. Um, grew up on acres. Mum and dad are still out there. Um, as a kid, you know, it was, you know, guys would drive their Maxi Fergusons down to the, to, you know, there's, there's, there's still only one set of shops and um, one streetlight in the town, but um, it's, uh, it's a very different vibe to, to what it used to be, but... You know, we had meat chooks and, and chooks and uh, for eggs. Mum grew um, a lot of the fruit and veg that we ate as kids. Um, Mum's a fantastic cook. Um, both my both sides of the family, grandparents, were, were great cooks. So always really intrigued by it. Um, always a good eater. Always been good on the tooth. Um, and then as I grew up, you know, sort of um, a lot of fishing and a lot of, you know, sort of running around the place and, Blinking rabbits as a kid and things like that, and that progressed into chasing the local deer population, and that sort of translated into. And I still do it now, a couple of times a year for a family friend to go out um, during the depths of winter, and we'll probably do oh, eight or twelve uh, lambs each year. Uh, there's talk of doing a few piggies. Um, yeah, so look, it's always been a thing. Um, fishing's always been a big thing for me, and that's how I ended up at the boathouse. 
But like you said, the uh, the, the four-legged variety of food has always been a big part too. Yeah. Um, t- tell us about the early sort of years in your career. Where, where did you get started and what were, what were the really important sort of people you worked with uh, sort of in that first, the beginning part of your career? The very beginning, I did work experience at a local golf resort, um, which was the best offer around at the time. And I was lucky enough to work under a bloke called John Slaughter um, at uh, Riverside Oaks Golf Resort. And uh, Slaughter's to the, so what I was, 14 and a half, 15 at that time. And um, Slaughter's gave me a job as a kitchen hand. And so I did a bit of food prep and weekend work. And um, he really nurtured me. And to this day, um, how many years on is that? A lot. Um, you know, we still talk probably four or five times a week. Um, so he's been a huge mentor and he's the one that really, he, he saw something in me and, and he basically said to me one night, you know, you're, you need to, to go and see the city. You need to see what's going on. And, um, he gave me a copy of, uh, Liam Tomlin's bank, uh, the cookbook instead of, you know, I'd love to see you, you know, in a restaurant like this one day. So, um, I actually didn't muck around at all. I just went, basically that evening, I went in and I rang uh, Bank and said, you know, young boy from the country wants to see city food. Um, they said next Saturday do a trial uh, and the rest is history. Well, there's an incredible alumni out of uh, out of that restaurant. Do you have any stories of what it was like working with the likes of um, Fasnage and Justin North and, and obviously Liam as well? So I, uh, I came in just after... The alumni had sort of gone its separate ways. Warren Turnbull, um, who's you know one of the lads, had had, um, had taken over as chef to a cuisine at the time. Uh, Northy had gone off and done Bacass. Um, Kempy had done Balzac. Fast was floating around town in a couple of other um, roles. I think Le Grand Bouffe was the first one of his restaurants that I had at all those years ago. Um, you know, and then there was a heap of other fantastic guys. You know. Um, Steve Krasicki, uh, Pete Shepard, obviously Brett Graham, probably the most famous out of all of them, who I went to work for in uh, Notting Hill um, a couple of years later. Um, you know, Fast is still a really good mate. We don't live too far around the corner from each other now. Kids are the same age. So um, probably the biggest thing for me was the intensity of the kitchen. You know, so I was this sort of naive country boy, um, had no bloody idea what, you know, why every time, you know, Liam called an order, everyone went, wee, wee. I didn't know what it was all about. So it was just get in there, boots and all, and just, uh, you know, have a go. But it, it just blew my mind um, just to, to watch. I'd never seen a brigade like that, you know. I'd, I'd come from, from a bit of a short-order kitchen on a golf resort in the Hawkesbury. What, what did you take from your time at Bank? Oh, look, Bank was, Bank was a fearsome kitchen at the time. And it was one of those, you know, scream from sun up to sundown sort of arrangements. But, um, you know, I was, I was really, really fortunate. Um, Liam was very kind to me. Once I'd sort of um, gotten through my three months of silence from him, um, he kind of went, well, this kid's going to hang around, so I might put a bit of time into him. Um, but just, I suppose it was, it was, Bank was just all about perfection at the time. Um, you sort of, you do look back on the old books and the, the things like that now, and you sort of go, "Oh, geez, I don't know if I'd do that again." But at the time, it was just, um, you know, it was the pinnacle. Um, and you know, we were working. It was the sort of the bad old days of the industry. We were working a lot. We weren't getting paid much, but the morale 
and you know, I, I wouldn't change my time there for the world, you know. Um, it just what it taught me, the connections that I made out of it, and the avenues that it opened up for me. And still to this day, you know, you, you say to people, oh, you know, I was at bank for two years, and oh, wow. So, you know, it was a, it was a great time. It was a... It was really like being, for me, as a, like I said, kid from a golf resort in the Hawkesbury, it was a, a real deep end experience, but yeah, I loved it. You mentioned Brett Graham and, and the Ledbury. Tell us about that move to the UK. Uh, what, what sort of triggered it and was it quite different to what you'd been used to? Um, the trigger for that really it was just one of those things. It was the rite of passage. You know, London was where all young chefs went at the time. Um, and obviously having connections through Warren and Colin and Justin and the like to Brett. Um, it made advanced seating. You know, so, so Brett chased me actually through Woz because they're, they're good mates. And um, But I'd sort of – I'd opened Assiette with Warren in Surrey Hills, which is now Gilders. Um, and, you know, Woz sort of said, oh, you know, I think you should go and see Brett, you know, at some point. So it just happened from there. You know, we landed in London and – was meant to have a couple of weeks of sightseeing and doing all that sort of stuff, but I think three days in, um, I was on the section at the Ledbury, and that that was it for for quite some time. <laughs> Do you have any stories of uh, what life was like in the kitchen, in at the Ledbury? Early Ledbury days were crazy, crazy, crazy. Like we'd kick off at, oh, we'd be waiting seven thirty in the morning, sitting on the doorstep, hoping for a set of keys to turn up, so because you know we we're always in the in the weeds. Um, so you'd find yourself sitting there freezing your bum off in Notting Hill, waiting for this door to open. You'd get in and it was just go, go, go all day. And if you were lucky, if you were lucky, you might be out by half one the next day, uh, the next morning, um, which, you know, sheer madness, lost a ton of weight in a very quick time. And, um, you know, mum thought I'd hit the party life in London, not the working life from the photos she was getting back. Um, but... An amazing bunch of guys to work with, and you know some of the guys have gone on to done to do you know phenomenal things. You know Isaac McHale worked with me on a garnish section in the you know he's now the, the Clove Club. Um, but Brett was I've never met a food mind like it. Um, just so intense, and never I don't think he ever thought about anything else but food. You know I remember nights. Um, you know, and like Brett had reached some amazing heights, two, two Michelin stars and, you know, Best Young Chef UK, all of the above. But deep down, he was still very much an Aussie boy at heart. And he loved his uh, kitchen full of Aussie boys. I think there was like nine of us at the time, uh, boys and girls. And um, But he just, uh, he burnt the candle at both ends. And I, I remember some nights, you know, we'd get a phone call from Brett's partner saying, oh, you look, you know, have you seen Brett? Have you seen Brett? And I remember going into the office one night and he was topless. He was just in a pair of checks um, and he had he had all these leather-bound books that he used to write his ideas in and the, the office was full of them. And he was asleep basically on the keyboard in the office, uh, just just in his clogs and he, in his, his slacks. And so I had to give him a poke and say, hey, mate, it's time to go home. But, you know, he, he never ever he – he was so intense, so intense. And um, it's been a long time since I've had any contact with Brett, but, you know, I just – I hope for his own sake he slowed down a little bit. <laughs> Tell us about your time in the UK. You know, um, there's an amazing sort of nose-to-tail uh, culture there with pigs. Um, what was your what were your experiences with pork in the kitchens you worked? Uh, the greatest experience that I had with pork was when we'd done 
so that was London was the tail end of the um, molecular gastronomy sort of arrangement, and um, it it was cool, but it, it never really you know hit a chord with me. Uh, you know, to to say this is the food that I want to cook into the future. And um, the gastropub scene was really, really strong at the time and very intriguing. So I actually took a position in country England um, for a couple of months um, at a gastropub called The Old Butchers. And um, the chef raised his own pigs at the time. Um, yeah, Gloucestershire Old Spots. Um, and, you know, they were always, you know, various sizes and shapes and, you know, some would go on as suckers and then we'd raise some out to a different size and then we'd let some go through to curing weight. Um, that was a real eye-opener for me. Um, but, you know, on top of the pork itself, you know, like having roe deer delivered by the local gamekeeper, um, teal, woodcock, pheasant, you know, things just turning up on doorsteps. It was pretty cool. Do you remember the first time you sort of broke down a whole pig over there? Um, tell us about that process. Yeah, so the whole uh, – that that was with Pete at the old butchers. Um, and, you know, like he, he – been talking about you know bath chaps bath chaps and i had no idea what it was but you know you know the process of you know basically tongue in cheek um being taken off the pig and um forced into these cones and then braised and you know that was the dish so that was really really cool um i, I just remember the big thing for me was i remember cutting up these pigs and looking at the the, the color of the meat it was a lot darker than any pork that i'd seen before and had a beautiful intramuscular fat spread um and then when I ate it, just the intensity of flavour. Um, you know, there was there was one time that we had an excessive amount of piglets, um, and they got to a weight where they weren't quite small enough to do um, suckling pig with. But then they're a little bit small to go the other way. But literally, we just had too many of them. Um, so Pete made the decision that we turned about six whole pigs, and we're t- probably talking about a carcass weight of 30, 35 kilos. We turned the whole lot. We put them through the mincer. And we made sausages. We ended up with a mountain of sausages. Um, we actually got hate mail from the pork board of the UK, you know, like, how dare you turn these beautiful heritage pigs into, you know, it's a travesty. Man, we sold like 130 kilos of bangers in a week. They were gone. <laughs> so, you know, the older, any publicity is good publicity. But um, that's probably the greatest pork memory that I had of the UK was dealing with Pete's Gloucestershire's. Well, it, particularly in the UK, the sausages is such a um, got a long cultural significance in regards to food. Well, I mean, what does it take to make a great sausage? Um, I mean, it's the old fat equation, basically. Um, you know, it's it, it. You know, obviously, good meat's a big thing. You can't just throw any old sinew into a sausage. But the better the ingredients you chuck in, um, obviously, the better product that you end up with at the end. And we're we're just we're in our infancy at the moment at, at Megalong with playing with things like that. And we're really lucky we've got the tea rooms up there, which is a 60-odd, you know, 70-year-old cafe um, uh, that we can actually – we can run a lot of things like that. Like the sausages will take place on our menu, but we can also – we can run them through the cafe down the bottom, which is great. And um, James, the, the guy I mentioned earlier who's doing our pigs over in the Canimbla, um, we've got – I think we've got six coming back to us next week at – They'll probably be a return weight of about 25 kilos. So a bit small, a bit leaner. We'll run them through the, the restaurant. But he's got a couple of sows that are getting towards the, the end of their breeding years. Um, we've got those earmarked. So they'll be big, you know, huge fat coverage. Um, we're going to turn those into all the small goods. Um, 
and then he's raising out another oh, six to a dozen for us at the moment that are you know we're going to hope for a return weight of about 70 kilos and that'll be a really universal weight to uh to get the best of both worlds you know those fresh cuts and the curing cuts you, you spent a lot of your career at the boathouse and, you know, had a real attachment to it and really made it successful um, as the head chef there. But, what's, but I remember there was terrestrial sort of proteins weaved through the menu and also partnered with seafood. Tell us a bit about how pork featured on such a strong seafood menu. Well, I think if you're going to pick any of the land animals to partner with fish, the, the pig just stands out. It's that sweet, fatty... It just, it works beautifully. Um, but, you know, we did a lot of things there, whether it would be, um, you know, making our own black pudding to run alongside things like scallops or ab. Um, cured pork cheek, you know, beautiful, fantastic fatty product that worked with. And then, obviously, not everyone that came to the boathouse was a seafood. As much as I wanted to have a menu that was 100% seafood, we always carried uh, meat entree, meat main, and, you know, the pork was always a, a popular product on the menu. Um, so, but, yeah, for me, like, if, if I if I could pick one sort of land animal to eat for the rest of my life, it would be the humble pig. Um, it's just the, the versatility and, um, you know, the amount of products that you get out of it is just incredible. So tell us a little bit about cooking pork because, you, you know, you became so famous for the way that you handled fish and the, the steps needed to cook fish beautifully what what are the tips that you have for cooking great pork you know when it comes down to cooking pork and and seafood obviously two very very different products but very similar in a lot of ways to to how, how you handle them uh, for me personally um salt is is the pig's best friend whether it be you know obviously for curing or just for your grilling and roasting cuts but the other thing like you know the the boathouse did the the it was never called dry aging a fish when we did it. We just we had the static fridge and we, we hung things vertically and um, we you know we gave it ample time to go through rigor to set and then you know have the skin dry out very naturally, um, which gives you that beautiful you know like particularly there, there's some fish species like uh, one of my favourites is a barcod. If you handled that right, the skin that you got on that was so similar to what you would get on you know a light covering of pork crackling on a on a small pig. Um, so basically now when we get our carcasses in, we have got a beautiful dry aging room up at the restaurant, but we give them two, three weeks on the hang and the effect, the, the moisture loss in the skin and they leather up and they dry out. Um, like I said, we did, we did a dish the other night of, um, some, some pork rack, um, and literally a couple of weeks on the hang, it was dry, crispy goodness on the outside before it even hit the heat, scored it very, very light nearly just a, a greased hand worth of salt you know we didn't want too much going back and creating a fat fire on the coals um really really good hit of salt and then basically a long slow cook fairly elevated over the open grill and it was the most decadent crackling i think i've ever made and no oven time at all which you know you just you wouldn't think was possible you know the traditional get your crackling is whack it in the oven really really hot and grab it a couple of hours later, but this was is done all over open fire. So it was, um, yeah, it blew them. Like I knew, you know, what we could do, um, but I had a couple of young blokes in the kitchen that had not seen something like that before, and it just sort of, I think it made them really evaluate, you know, reevaluate cooking and and what they'd learned, and you know that you can break away from tradition when you're cooking things like that, 
and, and just come up with an amazing result. Are you cooking different now that you're sort of cooking over fire a bit more? Um, yes and no, probably. So we're not 100% over fire. We have got a beautiful big wood oven and wood burning grill, but we've got all the power and the likes as well. But what it's probably done is, you know, I've been a an outdoors sort of guy my, my entire life and what it's done for me is sort of maybe brought my hobbies indoors a little bit um it's always been a big thing for me to go away camping with fam or friends and to, to cook a big joint of something hanging next to the fire for the day and just sort of set and forget so that's really for me it's um yeah it's 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 not a, a new experience um i'm just doing it on really flash equipment but it's it's just something that I've been passionate about for a long time, but not so much on a career path, but on a social level. Is there a cut of the pig that you um, have as a favourite, and is there a way that you love to cook it? Um, I'm a big fan of the hocks, to be honest. Um, you know, there's a long, slow cook. So, you, you know, you can do something. We had them on a couple of weeks back where we braised them um, for a really, really long time. Um twisted the bones out of them, pressed them, and then sort of reintroduced that to the wood oven later on and served it with some local persimmons and, and wild sorrel, things like that. Um, but, you know, a fantastic, you know, if you, you can cure them up and you can you can turn them into your smoked hocks and then braise them down, make them into your terrines, whatever it happens to be, or just, you know, simple braised hock and lentils. Um, but, you know, just get them fresh too and, and throw them in like you would a you know a great piece of roast pork give them a couple of days in the fridge to to dry up hit them really really hard um yeah a bit of a forgotten cut but very very versatile it's it's an incredible project that you're part of um up there in the megalong valley what are you loving about the whole project um the whole project for me is like it's we, we we've got the, first and foremost we've got the most amazing setting. You know, we just we, you look out the front of the restaurant. It's the you know the the sandstone escarpment. The Hydro Majestic literally sits um, above us up there in town. But we've just got the most beautiful surrounds, and the restaurant sits at the epicenter of the food production area. So out the back, you know, we've got a couple of acres of organic vegetable production. The seedling production house, um, the olive grove sits over the back. Out to the front. You know, we've got uh, the fruit orchard, which is still in its infancy. Um, you know, that'll be a couple of years away before we get a great commercial harvest. But we've been really lucky to have we, we, a lot of locals, both on a commercial level and just sort of, you know, you know, family farms that have got old orchards and things like that we're getting access to now. Um, it is a great community feel and people like, you know, I'll turn up at work now and there'll just be like a box of persimmons or someone's left some honey behind. Um, you know, uh, the guy that's doing the pigs for us actually turned up the other day with three bee boxes and he said, mate, he goes, I think these will be great for pollination in the orchard. Um, he said, and you'll get honey out of it too. So, you know, we, we started, we started to prove ourselves to the locals a little bit and, uh, everyone's been really, really supportive and, you know, it's, it's a great environment and it's fairly, it's a beautiful place to be in and, you know, like kitchens, can be high stress and you know the whole staffing and, and opening a restaurant for you know is, is a bit of a nightmare but you know i can always grab a cup of tea and go and find a quiet tree to sit under for five minutes and reset and come back so 
it's a it's a beautiful place to be, mate. It sounds absolutely extraordinary, and um, it's an absolute honour, as always, to get you on the show, mate. Um, please keep in touch, and we'll catch up again soon. Most definitely. Thanks very much, Huck. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.